0: Hi, this is Ben Lola back to the Bible Canada. Today we're beginning a new series to start off the new year with Dr. John Newfeld called Remembering the Second Coming of Jesus. Well, so let's begin now with his first message on Awaiting the Return of Christ, taken from 2 Peter chapter 3,
1: verses 1 to 13. Well, Christmas is past and of course Christmas is the time to speak about the first coming of Jesus. And even so, I find that New Year's is an appropriate time to speak about the second coming of Jesus. So just for this week, we're going to take a moment to reflect on a day to come when Christ himself will return, a day which will be unlike every other day in history, when the heavens part and the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And that is called the hope of the church. You know, today I'm going to base my remarks on 2 Peter 3 1 12, and tomorrow we're going to look at the book of Daniel, and then Wednesday we're going to look at Matthew 24, and Thursday from 2 Thessalonians, and Friday from the book of Revelation. So here's what I have in mind. By choosing so wide a series of Bible texts, I want us to see how the second coming of Jesus is not just an afterthought tagged onto the back of our Bible, but it is a theme that weaves its way through the entire Bible and is one of the central tenets of our faith. But have you also noticed that the second coming of Jesus isn't a popular a topic as it used to be? See, I like to say that I'm old enough to have a memory, and I remember the popularity of a number of even evangelical Bible teachers who, during my lifetime, set dates some way back in the 1970s, taught that when Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 34, that this generation will not pass away until these things take place, they said that the generation that Jesus had in mind was the generation that would see the Jews coming back to their homeland. And so they reasoned since the nation of Israel was formed in in 1948, And since a biblical generation is normally 40 years long, taking us to 1988, and since we have to leave room for the tribulation and the rapture, we have to subtract seven years, and therefore, the rapture would probably happen before 1981. And there were some uh, Bible teachers of that day who believed that and taught that. But, of course, these Bible teachers were not the only ones to make bad predictions. William Miller, the founder of a movement called Millerism, out of which came Seventh-day Adventism, predicted that Christ would return by March 22nd, 1844. And the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Taze Russell, predicted that Christ would return by 1914, strike one. When that didn't turn out, he set out a new day, 1918, strike two. Then he predicted 1925, strike three. And He should have been out by then, but the Jehovah's Witnesses kept right on going. The organization then predicted that Christ would come back in 1941, strike four. In fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses hold the record nine times they predicted the coming of Christ, nine strikes and no hits. I mean, when do you strike out in this business? You have to wonder. But I remember the book, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988, and one year later, 89 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1989. And just so we won't leave anyone out, I mean, why should the North Americans have all the fun? I remember a Korean group called Mission for the Coming Days predicted October 28, 1992 is the day of the rapture. Or consider one popular end-times Bible teacher in our day, regularly on television. I think he's pretty well predicted every year since 2000 that the rapture would happen that year, so he is now, I think, actually beaten out the Jehovah's Witnesses in failed predictions. I mean, congratulations, Drum roll, please, we have a new record holder. Well, I could say more. Harold Camping predicted Christ would return on May 21, 2011. And why should the Christians have all the fun? In in 1997, a group called Heaven's Gate, where else but in Southern California, predicted that the arrival of the Hale-Bopp comet in our part of the galaxy was the end of all things, so they committed mass suicide in order to reach an alien spaceship located secretly on that comet that would get them off this planet and spiritually onto that spaceship and safely off the mess called Earth. And of course, who can forget the Mayan calendar, which showed the world would come to an end or the age of the present era would come to an end or or something would come to an end on December 21st, 2012. And what did we get as a result? No end of anything except, I guess, the Mayan calendar. You see, the net result of all this nonsense, this crazy stuff, has led some Christians because they want to distance themselves from the nutters not to want to speak much about Christ's return at all. After all, it will happen when it will happen. Nothing we can do about it, right? So today, as we begin to approach a new year, I want us to go to a doctrine that is central to our faith, the doctrine of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ from Second Peter chapter 3. Let me begin to read. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You know, the book of 2 Peter was written by Peter the Apostle not too long before his martyrdom in Rome, somewhere between AD 64 and 67. As with all the later books in the New Testament, Peter is much concerned with two matters. The first is persecution, and the second is false teaching from within the church. 2 Peter's major focus is on the false teachers who masquerade as true followers of Christ and are leading people astray. Well, we don't know a lot about the false teachers Peter is addressing. We know, however, that he denounces their lifestyles, especially when it comes to sex and greed and arrogance. But we also know that whoever these false teachers were, they were scoffers, they were mockers. And one of the places where it was so easy to mock, that is a soft target, we might say today, had to do with the second coming of Jesus. Now, when it comes to the Lord's return, especially in our day, Given the amount of absolutely silly prophecies that have foolishly been made, it's very easy for us to be very much like these people were 2,000 years ago, scoffers. All you have to do is, is put out a list of all the failed prophecies, and by the way, I've only mentioned a few of them in my lifetime, and those who mock the faith will readily point their fingers and say, you see what I'm talking about? I hope we can see that just like the time of Peter, the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus attracts mockers. But against the mocking, Peter wants to impress on his readers two factors. First, his readers should remember the predictions of the Old Testament prophets who spoke of the coming day of the Lord. And secondly, they should remember what Jesus commanded. No doubt Peter had in mind such commands as the one found in Matthew 24, verse 42. That we should watch and be ready, for Jesus will come back at an hour, even when we are not expecting him. And then Peter takes us to his warning, and that's found in verse 3. Scoffers will come, he says, in the last days. And these same scoffers who appear in the last days will follow their own sinful desires. That is, they will be sold out to sinful lifestyles. And this leads us now to consider a question. Is Peter talking about some date on the eschatological calendar? I mean, maybe as a sign that we have entered the end times. That is, when you're hearing more mocking than you've ever heard before, is that when Christ is returning? I mean, should we keep track of the amount of disbelief around the second coming of Jesus and then as we see it rising say, well, that's one of the signs of the end times? I think the answer is actually quite simple. The expression, the last days, is actually quite common in the New Testament. For instance, the book of Hebrews begins with an expression, and I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. There it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In other words, the writer of Hebrews believed he was then living in the last days. He believed that, two thousand years ago. Now, was he right? And what does that mean for our belief that we are living in the last days? More about that when we come back.
0: Why is the second coming of Jesus so important for believers to understand and apply? Well, in this introduction, we're getting a sense of what it means for us to know this doctrine based on what God's Word says and not on the false predictions that we often hear about. So how should we interpret Peter's words that we're living in the last days? Well, more on this and what we need to know to apply this truth in our own lives when we come back. Thanks for listening today, and have you received your copy of Dr. Neufeld's first 30-day devotional? There's still time to get this exclusive product called Quiet Spaces. Full of rich biblical insights, each day's entry focuses on a specific theme to help you center your life around Christ and His Word. We want to help you grow in your faith, which is why we're offering this devotional as our free gift to you. So if you haven't already, please ask for your copy today at 1-800-663-2425 or send us an email at info at Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: Are we living in the last days today? Now, that's the question I want to consider. We noticed that 2,000 years ago, the writer of the book of Hebrews believed he was living in the last days. Or listen to James 5.3, where James is condemning rich people who do not fear God. There he says, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. See, at the time of James, James was condemning some rich people who, not knowing they were in the last days, were hoarding up earthly wealth. Well, what good is earthly wealth when you're in the last days? Let me illustrate that. You know, as the American Civil War was nearing its end, southern Confederate currency was becoming worthless paper. You know, as the South collapsed, all your hoarded money was like hoarding worthless paper. It was sheer folly. That, says James, is what it's like for the unrighteous rich. They are holding on to worthless paper. As this age passes away, all their effort will prove itself to be what it is, sheer folly. Or listen to how Peter uses the phrase, the last times, in 1 Peter 1.20. He's speaking about the first coming of Jesus, his advent, and there Peter says of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In other words, according to Peter, when Jesus was revealed, his coming, that is, the Christmas story, the babe found in the manger, is the signal that we're living in the last days. Please remember, he said that 2,000 years ago. So we can safely say, first of all, since the Bible record is true, that we are now living in the last days. And when did the last days begin? They began with the first coming of Jesus. What I want us to understand is that the last days do not begin when Israel becomes a nation or, or when Russia or Syria invade Israel or when the common market has 10 nations or when the amount of earthquakes in the world increases. We are, before this week is over, going to talk about Jesus' words that there will be wars in various places and earthquakes. But whatever he meant when he said that, can I help us all here? Jesus did not say that earthquakes would increase in number and intensity before he returned. He didn't say that. You know, some of us have added that to his statement, and then we go on to try to prove that that's happening in our day. But all this kind of talk is rank speculation, and it has to be stopped. See, what does the New Testament actually teach? It teaches that with the coming of Jesus, his first advent, And with the announcement that Jesus made that in him, the kingdom of heaven had arrived, with this has come a new era. And this era is the last great epoch of human history. And we don't know how long these days will last, but these, from the first to the second coming, are the last days indeed. Now, I know that can be boring to some. I know some of you wanted me to say, when Iran gets nuclear missiles, or when Putin defeats ISIS and takes over and Syria moves her troops up to the Israeli borders, and when Israel makes a peace treaty with the Palestinians, and when the people from the Temple Institute place a cornerstone on the Temple Mount to rebuild the Temple, You know, on and on it goes, then we're in the last days. And by that, we mean that we, us, we must be the generation that will see the return of Christ. But all of that has been tried before. And every time this stuff gets parleyed about, it results in false prophecy and undermines the biblical doctrine of last things. And it's all wrong. The New Testament knows only one definition of the last days. It is the era of the reign of God introduced in Jesus that signals the last great epoch in human history. Ah, but that's where the false teachers were mocking. Look again at verse 4. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The fathers they were speaking about are no doubt the fathers in the Old Testament from Abraham to the present. and What they are saying is the coming of Christ, that is the first coming, changed nothing. Yes, we heard that Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead, and and this is the decisive victory against sin and death, and that his resurrection signals that death has been defeated and a new era has begun. But really, practically, nothing's changed. History just carries on. People keep on dying, and wars and rumors of wars keep going, and earthquakes and upheavals and convulsing of the earth and dire predictions. These things have been with the human race from the beginning of time. Yes, there are new events, but in these events, we don't see the second coming of Christ. So really, God is not going to intervene in the world as you suggest, and that was their mockery. Now, says Peter, they forget two very important things. First, they forgot what Peter mentioned in verses 5 to 6. He says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. Now, these verses may seem a bit confusing, but it really shouldn't be. Peter is simply referring to the creation account in Genesis 1 that is, God separating the water from the water, the creation of dry land, and so forth. We might restate his point this way. At one point in time, there was nothing. Then God created, but for some time, the world was chaotic, formless and void, and that state of the earth might have gone on that way for some time. But at some point in time, God spoke and separated out the water from the water, and dry ground appeared. God simply spoke. The chaotic world took upon itself purpose and meaning, and a new era had begun because at just the right time, God intervened, and when he does, everything changes. That's what happened at creation. And the point is then quite simple. So you say God never intervenes? Creation itself is the intervention of God. And by the way, that's also the thing we say to naturalists. The universe is finite, both in space but also in time. That means there is a place where there is no nature. Also, there was a time in which no matter existed, but now it does. For the person who says, I only believe in science, the question is, what science explains the existence of something in a finite universe? The fact that something rather than nothing exists, and the fact that something cannot come into existence out of nothing points us in the direction of a creator. And Peter is saying to those who mock the second coming, who say everything goes on as it always did, that this is decidedly untrue. If everything was simply ongoing without a major change, well then, there would be no world, no cosmos, no nature, no anything. Clearly God has intervened, and when he intervenes, all the past rules change, and God intervened when he spoke the worlds into existence. And then Peter goes on to a second point, and it's found in verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And so Peter chronicles another great era in history, a moment in time when everything changed, and he's referring to Noah's flood. And then Peter adds the next point. Verse 7 says, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, why should it then surprise you to say, another great change, another great moment in history yet awaits us? And with that, Peter tells us of the patience of God. The present era, these last days, this living in the end times seems to have lasted longer than we might have anticipated. But with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, and God will not be pushed around by people's timetable or by their vain attempts of what constitutes a long or a short period of time. He is the Lord of history, and he will act on his timetable. And when the next great epoch in history arrives, the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And then Peter invites his hearers to live lives of expectation, living with a sure knowledge that we never know when the events of the end of the age will suddenly tumble upon us with such swiftness that none will have time to prepare. The day to prepare, he says, is now. So as we face a new year, let's live in the light of expectation. Stay with me as we build a deep expectation of the Lord's soon return.
0: John, a great and intriguing message. And the bottom line is, I think at the beginning you were saying, you know, uh, no one has the corner of the market of predicting the end times. So many groups have tried, and obviously so many have failed. But that's not the point of
1: the last days, is it? What is the point? Yeah, it's not the point, although I must say that because there are so many people groups that have a sense within them that the present order of things won't continue to stay the way they are forever. We know that. I think we can say that scientifically, we know that spiritually in our own hearts. That, I think, is because God has already placed that in our hearts. But the point is that we are looking forward to the consummation of Jesus, and we should live with expectation and hope. And and I love to say, you know, perhaps this will be the year of Christ's return, but please don't hear me saying, I'm predicting that. I'm living with hopefulness, but my hope is based on a fact Jesus promised it.
0: What a great study. We've learned a lot about the times we're living in and what it means to grasp this reality of Jesus' second coming. At the start of a new year, it's also quite a fitting topic to consider. After all, we must be reminded of an issue that tends to be overlooked or misunderstood by many in the church today. Peter's explanation helps us to know for sure that we're living in the last days as we await the return of Jesus and live in light of that. Hopefully this study has given you an increased interest to learn more as we continue this week in our series. Don't miss tomorrow's program as we look at the book of Daniel and what it tells us about the final triumph of Jesus. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The first words of the Gospel of John say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We hope you've had a meaningful time of celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ this Christmas. The Christmas season may be over, but there are still four days left before the end of December, which means that as a ministry, we're working hard to meet our year-end goal so that we can continue to move forward in 2016. Every day, it's an incredible privilege to teach the Bible on air and across so many different mediums. As we near the end of 2015, this year has been amazing. God has been so faithful to this ministry. I can't begin to tell you all about what we've been able to accomplish on the radio, through our publications, events, and so much more. And it's only through the support of listeners like you that we can continue to further this mission to teach God's word across Canada. December is our most critical month of the year financially and we only have four more days to raise our year-end financial goal of $390,000 before December 31st. So please make that special gift and partner with us to proclaim the good news. Every dollar counts and it's only together that we can share the greatest story of all time. To donate, please visit backtothebible.ca or call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.